This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited to be speaking today to Christopher Young, Managing Director and Global Head of Contested Situations at Jefferies. He's one of the top bankers advising companies targeted by activists. And I've had the pleasure of knowing Chris since he worked as a director of M&A and proxy fight research at Institutional Shareholder Services, the proxy advisor, over a decade ago. So thanks, Chris, for taking the time. Thanks, Ron. Happy to be here. Okay, cool. So I wanted to pick your brain, I mean, on a lot of different subjects, but I thought maybe we would start with the influence of the proxy advisors. And by proxy advisors, of course, I mean institutional shareholder services primarily, and also Glass-Lewis and their impact on activism. And we always hear that, you know, big investors review the advice that ISS produces, and then, you know, they have their own team and they make their own decisions. And they just want to have several different inputs and things they consider. But I always feel like in hotly contested situations, and since, you know, you work on contested situations at ISS, I thought maybe you would have a view on this, trying to get a sense of how big ISS's impact is and the proxy advisors in general. And, you know, I was looking at some of the different proxy fight settlement results lately. And after favorable ISS recommendations for Carl Icahn and Sachem Head, both succeeded at ousting CEOs at target companies and boards were shaken up. And then, of course, a negative ISS report hurt McKellum's Coles change of control contest. I still don't understand why he didn't reduce that to a minority slate prior to the contest. But, you know, that he lost the contest and no sale materialized. And actually, it's interesting. I think it's possible he could be back next year, according to one other legal advisor I spoke to not long ago. But OK, so bottom line, Chris, you know, how important are these? And I'm wondering if they play more of a role in smaller and mid-sized companies targeted by activists that, you know, in proxy fights, let's say it's small and mid-sized companies, than they do at bigger ones. But I don't know. I just feel like yeah. they're, they're, they're very important. They, they are. And the, the, my first answer is not going to be satisfying. I'm going to say it depends, <laughs> but I'll explain it. So I was on the ISS side for many years, but, you know, the last 12 back on advising publicly traded companies facing activists. One of the first things we do is, you know, we turn to the proxy solicitor. We look at the current share register, which of course can be dated and And we won't get into stock surveillance and all that right now. But basically, off of the information that we do know about who owns shares, you know, collectively, uh, we make a determination for that company about how influential ISS and or Glass-Lewis is going to be. Because I'll just give you extreme examples that don't exist in real life. If you've got a company with 100% hedge fund ownership, ISS influence is going to be you know, next to nothing because the hedge funds are going to make their own decisions next to nothing on a proxy fight or M&A. Mm-hmm. You know, the hedge funds may defer on compensation issues, et cetera, but on the big daddy issues, M&A and proxy fights, they're going to make their own decision. In contrast, that with a company maybe 100% owned by quants that are you know, it's being invested based upon a black box. They don't have the staff to evaluate director election contests or M&A. And so they're you know, very likely just to defer, most of them to defer completely to ISS. Now, most companies are in between, and it really doesn't matter, in my view, whether they're small, mid, or large cap. It's really how widely disseminated are they, how much are owned by institutional investors. 
And then do those investors tend to defer? And you can kind of look at their voting history, some of them, through Forum MPX with the SEC. Mm, that's coming up uh, soon. <laughs> yeah. But as you know, Ron, like we get funds like BlackRock have indeed vested a lot in their voting group. They have the ability to do that. But some other passives, smaller passive shops do not. And I would say that even though that BlackRock has done that, of course, they have to vote on virtually everything. So even with their growing staff of analysts that you know make the recommendation internally on how BlackRock should vote, there's still too much coming in over the transom. So to me, it's, yes, I'll sort of reverse a little bit of what I said. The influence bias that's maybe higher on smaller cap or mid cap only because those companies fall down the priority list of the big passes, right? Conversely, something that's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal every day or the deal is going to uh, have enough attention that from a triage perspective, you know, the BlackRock, Vanguard, State Streets of the world are going to spend more time on it because of the exposure, really, of their vote. Hmm. And so that's, I think, where it really impacts the ISRS recommendation. A proxy solicitor would tell you can impact you know, kind of the rule of thumb we use that I have in my materials is up to 30%, but it really depends on register to register, what type of investors are in there, and then whether this is high profile, whether it's getting extra media coverage in which case the funds that actually own shares are going to be more likely to spend time engaging with the parties and coming up with their own recommendation. All of that said, in my experience, if Glass-Lewis and ISS are aligned on a recommendation, Mm -hmm. that outcome tends to happen. So to me, I always advise our clients, it's sort of like, well, it can either be a vicious circle or a virtuous circle, depending on how you look at it. The ISS is recommendations influences the vote, yet ISS's recommendation is influenced by their dialogue with their clients. So, Right. It's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? When it chicken comes or the egg, exactly. <laughs> and so with the net result, and we have the numbers, is ISS's recommendation tends to match the outcome of both contested M&A, I would call not just you know, friendly M&A, every, everything's approved. But contested MA and proxy fights for board seats. Wait, so, is your point that typically they're, they're not diametrically uh, opposed to each other? ISIS and Glass Lewis, they, they made different degrees. Like one will recommend for one dissonant, the other will recommend for three dissonants. Is that? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. And, I, and listen, they, they're, they're competitors, right? And, and having been there, I sometimes would uh, wonder what they were going to do. I was at the bigger shop, but they've got great people there. And, and I think they, it's not a stated policy, but I think they certainly don't want to be coming out the same all the time because then people would say, well, what's the point of <laughs> hiring one, you know, you know, two? Um, but that's not the policy. But and I do think Glasswood is a, a little bit more conservative historically as far as deferring to management. And then I would just make another point to close that off. Conversely, if an activist does not get the support of Either ISS or Glass Lewis, it's game over. And right. I think this reveals a little bit about long only mainstream investors, meaning some of those investors may want some change on the board. They're still, despite the stigma of supporting activism, almost completely dissipating since when I started doing this in 2004. But despite yeah. that, they still are going to, to vote against sitting directors is still a big deal for some of these funds. And so 
they want to do it. If ISS and or Glass Lewis give them air cover with an, you know, by issuing a supportive report for the activist, then they're more comfortable going through their internal processes at their fund to get approval to vote against a sitting director or to vote against a, a contested merger, for example. If they don't get that support, if they can't even say that, they, they can't say, well, ISS and Glass-Lewis both support management here, but I'm not going to. I think that's just harder for them to do. There's no air cover of that recommendation to help that portfolio manager manage that process. So I can't think of offhand, I'm sure there is one or two, when the activist doesn't get the support of either of the duopoly proxy advisory services, it's game over for them. Yeah. And I was thinking that one example that kind of backs up your point was that uh, the very bizarre proxy fight, but fascinating proxy fight that took place this year between uh, Warren Lichtenstein, who you remember <laughs> was a prolific yep. activist in the 2000s with his steel partners versus the CEO of Aerojet Rocketdyne. So anyways, ISS and Glass was recommended against his slate and he lost overwhelmingly. So that backs your initial point. I guess one just follow-up question on that, and I always wondered about this. After ISS and Glass-Lewis issued their recommendation reports, we sometimes see a uh, increase in settlement negotiation talks. I mean, that didn't happen at Aerojet, because I guess Eileen Drake, the CEO, felt that she had an overwhelmingly strong hand after ISS and Glass-Lewis recommended against his slate of directors. But I don't know, maybe when it's a more close kind of situation, do we sometimes see settlement negotiations? Maybe they don't result in settlement. Maybe they do. But, you know, is that something that happens after that? Absolutely. So what happens, just to educate the audience, when you're in a live fight, right from the beginning, you know, a company and also the activists will hire a proxy solicitor. And for those that don't know what they do, they solicit votes on behalf of the client. Uh, and they also provide expertise in where the shares may be held and the history of those shareholders and supporting the activism, et cetera, or how influenced each one of those are by ISS. And my team, of course, supplements that. And I'm sure others around the street, but you start to create a spreadsheet with firmly in the company camp, firmly against, and then leaning one way or the other. And then leaning the TBD for ISS, right? That we believe that if the ISS rec comes out one way, that will knock the lean over into for or against. So when the ISS rec finally come out, uh, that spreadsheet is updated. And basically the proxy solicitor and the, and the bankers and outside counsel tell the board, here's what it looks like now. And so in the Aerojet case, it, you know, it probably looked, tremendously strong for the CEO. And and so no settlement, but a lot of times it takes away some of the hope of one of the sides. It's not always the company. It's sometimes it's the activists where they thought, you know, they were going to get the ISS rec or they were going to get a stronger ISS rec in favor. ISS only recommended favor one dissident. The dissident thought they were going to get three and it changes everybody's spreadsheets, and that drives people to the negotiation table for negotiations for a cooperation agreement. No, oh, yeah, no, it's very interesting. Definitely, we'll be keeping a close eye on ISS and Glass. For me, as a reporter, I feel like I always have to get the actual reports because the press releases put out by each side 
Uh, so, so, you know, uh, the ISS recommends voting on the right. company proxy card or on the activist proxy card. But then you read closer. It's like, well, they actually recommend it for one of the activist three candidates, even though it sounds so promising. Are you, are you saying that you, are you saying besides cherry pick quotes from the <laughs> report? Absolutely. Of course. Yep. Yeah, that, that too. <laughs> and uh, so that's why I like to get the reports themselves right. and see the actual you know, a lot of time it's very nuanced, you know, you're looking with the, yeah. the spirit, what is it, the spirit, ISS is, is driving, I think, Spirit Airlines crazy with its uh, flip-flop oh, yeah. recommendations on yep. that yep. triangle with their Frontier deal and their jet yep. effort there. But I think one of the reports was that they recommended in favor of the Frontier deal, but uh, clients may want to prefer the JetBlue right. one. And then later, yeah. like said, we support the, the JetBlue one completely. Uh, yeah. no, sorry, they oppose the uh, frontier, you know, recommend against the frontier deal. So we'll see what their next one is there. It's already, you know, yeah. somebody changes something. But okay, I wanted to shift to another subject. One of my favorite subjects on activism, which is how important is MA as a goal for activists? And I find that even when they don't admit it, MA is an important part of, of their thesis. And some of it is very public, you know, as we saw with McKellum, pushed for Coles to sell, didn't work out. But, uh, you know, I guess, one, do you agree with my theory that, you know, M&A is a very important goal for activists, even though they have this, you know, PowerPoint presentation with a dozen operational changes that they want to see and no mention of a divestiture of a unit or a sale of the business or really, you know, I was writing about a live person, the starboard yeah. and uh, I found some sell side analyst reports where they thought that the Zoom video would be interested in buying live person for a variety. Yeah. So I'm like, huh, I know Starboard likes to read Southside analyst reports that have M&A ideas. But anyways, so I guess one, do you agree that M&A is an important goal for activists? And, you know, I'm talking about the wide variety of different M&A options. And do you believe that the M&A market is cooling down due to macroeconomic factors? And if so, do you think it'll have an impact on activists? I guess lots of hypothetical yeah. thoughts. Yeah, no, no, but I, I understand what you're getting at. To me, Again, almost doing this 20 years, M&A is clearly almost always the best outcome for an activist. Even if they go into a campaign on an operational basis, cut costs, et cetera, you're telling me they get on the board and then somebody lobs in a 30% premium over their lower cost base, right? Because they typically have only owned it for a short period of time. So you own, you own something for a short period of time and then you get that takeover premium on top of it. And especially if you use leverage to build your position, that creates a kind of a home run rate of return for the year when you, when you annualize it. So <laughs> that will always remain, in my opinion, the number one activist demand. It does require, or typically requires a vibrant M&A market, right? So your second question, and right, so and I'm not going to sit here and forecast M&A, but we certainly have seen a slowdown this year. You would expect to see a slowdown in a rising rate environment. I do know that I've read studies over the years that the number one metric that correlates with M&A activity is GDP growth. So if we are GDP shrinking, that's not good for, for M&A. So let's just say the level of M&A activity will decline, which is not even being that bold because I think last year's you know, set an all-time record. So bound to decline even absent these macroeconomic forces. So if that declines, then it makes it harder because you don't have as 
many willing buyers. You know, the M&A market is in a quote unquote bear market. On the other hand, if you got companies that suddenly may be trading at more reasonable values, right? And the tired trope of the dry powder held by sponsors, for example, the dry powder held by activist hedge funds, right? They, both of those need to be put to work. And so you could argue that for those buyers that have access to capital, have already raised the money and can put it to work, that that could create some level of activism and M&A activism. And that's kind of what we saw in the wake of the global financial crisis. We did see a dip in M&A activism versus other styles of activism, mm-hmm. but you didn't see it go away completely because of these other factors. To me, there are four types of activism. It's M&A, balance sheet, operational, and governance. And governance is not a driver for the economic activists uh, per se to create alpha. Obviously, there are some new ESG-focused activists, but putting them aside for a minute. So it's really three, M&A, balance sheet, and operational. And operational is something that only a few of them can do well. Nelson Peltz obviously was the first really to do it, quasi-private equity, as he would describe it, or private equity disintermediation is another way he describes it. But it's hard work. That's a multi-year period where you're, you know, you're rolling up your sleeves and helping a company trim its portfolio, look at margins, cost center, et cetera. So most don't want to do that, right? And balance sheet is also very easy, but it's also pretty blunt. It's hard to just go in and say return cash unless it's like a closed-end fund trading at a discount or something, but just an operating company and maybe going into a recession or in a recession, perhaps. It's hard to tell them, even though they could argue that they're overcapitalized for a healthy market, are they overcapitalized for an extended recession, right? We don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting conflict, right, that I'm watching because you did see a dip in balance sheet activism after the global financial crisis that, you know, for the same reasons. Everybody wanted a rainy day fund. Right. And they, want, they, exactly. they wanted that for COVID too, right? But if COVID's rolling off, but now that we have a recession, maybe there's another reason, right, not to return cash to shareholders, a reason sufficient for the Black Rocks of the world, right? And if that is sufficient for them, then, you know, you're not going to see a lot of balance sheet either. So I found a couple of interesting M&A type activist situations that have been kind of scratching my head a bit uh, just this week. And one of them is a situation, well, it's this Botse had a kind of a campaign uh, in 2020, got directors on the board of Argo, this insurance company. And then uh, more recently, they launched a street review and our sister publication wrote a report suggesting that that review I guess it doesn't appear to be surprising, is is not going that well. But I wonder part of it is that even if Argo sells at a a massive premium to its current trading price, it'll still be substantially below the cost basis for the activists there. You know, there's a few other strategic reviews we're looking at. There was an article yesterday in, in Reuters about New Relic doing a strategic review, and there's activists there as well. You wonder whether now activists are maybe not so excited about a sale, if the sale is at a premium, that would mean that they lose money, basically. And there's one other example, which I thought was kind of interesting. Another situation where there was a hostile bid, it was a kind of a small cap situation where two, three activists are involved. And I was communicating with one of the activists 
And I was surprised that they were okay with the hostile bid price because I was able to, you know, very easily go through their 13D and amended 13D reports and see that this hostile bid price was at a discount to their cost basis. <laughs> he wouldn't really explain it, but I feel like in some situations, and you know, there's a few that I could think of historically where activists are willing to accept a sale just to get liquidity. I'm wondering if this is true, just to get liquidity, get out, and they're worried that the situation could deteriorate. This is the best option, even though they're going to lose money in their investment. So anyways, I'm kind of torn about kind of existing auctions where activists have large positions, but not likely to make that back. Yep. Yeah, no, it's a great observation. It's funny. I was just recently talking with a company. It's not public, so I can't really talk about the company, but we were talking about this issue. There's a potential for an activist situation there. And we you know, trying to discern what the end game for that activist would be. And of course, one of the end games would be sell the company. And we got right into that. They were, okay, the, the cost basis is here though. Companies trading here, even if you got you know a substantial premium or over current, that means that the activist will have lost money. And in this case, we've determined that they're likely to be patient and not want to sell right away to take that loss, right? On the other hand, you've mentioned examples where that's not always the case. And I think it's just be from investment, investing 101. My first job out of college was trading futures and options. And the good investors I was taught, they realized sometimes they were wrong and there are opportunity costs for still sitting in something. And then psychologically, you need to be able to cut your losses and reallocate your capital to something else. Like Carl Icahn, infamously or famously, because it's actually really good investing. You know, when he, we, he bought that position in, in Clorox a few years back, really on solely on an M and A thesis. And then when he realized that there really wasn't going to be any M and A, he, he sold, even though it was going to solidify some losses there. Whereas others kind of let their psychology go and hold on. So I think the people that sell are realizing that on an organic basis, the share price is not going to get back to their cost basis. And they've got capital tied up in, in dead money, in, in their opinion. Mm-hmm. And so they're out. And, you know, again, investment 101, they should be out and reallocating that capital somewhere else if that's what they conclude. Yeah. And it's interesting because in some cases, I mean, one, one of the situations I'm thinking about, there's three different activists that got involved at different cost basis. So they may have different theories, uh, you know, uh, feelings yeah. about what a sale would be. Maybe some are supportive, some are not so supportive, right. depending on right. when they got in. So that it'll be kind of interesting to see how that plays out. Okay, we don't have a lot of time. I wanted to tackle at least one more subject. And it's another one, you know, I'm, I'm based in D.C., uh, Chris, as you know, so I'm very interested in the kind of the regulatory aspects involving activism. And there's huge amounts of changes going on in terms of regulation for activists happening. But I guess the one that is definitive is the Securities Exchange Commission adopted rules requiring universal proxy cards. And uh, for the audience that doesn't know what this is, is in, in a nutshell, it, it gives investors, particularly institutional investors, who are, I guess, the most interested in voting in proxy contests, more flexibility to pick and choose among an incumbent and distant slate. And I think it actually, back to our ISS Glass-Lewis topic, gives ISS and glass a little bit more flexibility in how they recommend for incumbent and distant directors. And there's a lot more to it, obviously, but that's basically it. Like if the dissident has four directors up for like a nine-person board, it's easier for the institution uh, investor to support, let's say, one of those dissidents and the remaining eight incumbents with the universal proxy card. So these are set to take effect September 1. I want to note that there's an interesting universal proxy contest I'm actually following right now in Israel, where universal proxy cards are permitted. 
And that's involving this U.S. company, Aviat, a wireless tech company, hostile bid for Sarah John, which is based in Israel. But putting that aside, Chris, so I guess I wanted to get a sense, you know, one, do you think this is a big shift, big change, and what kind of impact will these universal proxy cards have on contests? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And we're still trying to nail it down ourselves. We have a client that may be facing, in theory, a proxy fight in September. Again, it's not public. Mm-hmm. And that would be after the universal proxy comes into play. And like right. we, we told them, hey, you guys might be the first one <laughs> that's facing this. And what does that mean? So listen, if you ask the man on the street that knows nothing about proxy, everything, should it, you know, if you're voting an election, should you be able to vote for anyone that's up for election or against them? And you know, that person, the man on the street would say, yes. So, I mean, this antiquated proxy system where you had to put, if you're ISS, you have to put your clients on one card or the other. Obviously, it was always an issue that ISS thought should be fixed, that instant, more importantly, institutional investors thought should be fixed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was just an accident history that it went this way. So I think we're modernizing, you're giving shareholders the ability to exercise the full franchise, meaning the voting. You'd get clients that wanted to support one or two of four nominees by an activist. And it, the only way they could do that was to go on the activist card and then not withhold against the, uh, the two activist nominees. So not really being able to vote affirmatively for two, mm-hmm. the, the rest of the board, and people didn't like that. So what does it mean? And it expressed itself also in, in, other, in ways like if people really care, for example, Heinz, one of the seminal proxy fights against Tryon way back in 2006, I went all the way to a vote mm-hmm. at the time, the largest cap proxy fight of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the top three shareholders hired Skadden Arps to go to the meeting with a legal proxy so that they could, in effect, do what the universal proxy card will allow, which is cast all your votes for the total number of directors open, right? But they needed to hire a law firm to go do that, right? But they felt it important enough that they didn't want to be stuck on one card. At Target, another big proxy fight with Bill Ackman a few years later, he asked for the universal proxy card. It's almost always turned down by the company, which probably will lead you to the, the next conclusion that most people believe, you know, this is going to help activists get representation on the board. Mm-hmm. Now, you may not have the unintended consequence of where the activist is going for board control, and most investors don't support that, yet they want change. So they voted on the dissident card, but they just voted in a different way. And so suddenly... They wanted two directors, but now there are five and the board control is turned over. You won't have that with the universal card, but it'll make it certainly easier to get one or two people on, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Just to get one or two people just on. Just the dissonance to get one or two people on. The, the barrier has dropped on that. It may be harder to get control mm-hmm. so because of the technicalities, but... At the end of the day, I think it's a good thing for shareholders. But if I'm a shareholder, I, I would want to be able to pick and choose. And, and if nine directors are up, and permanently vote for nine, maybe, you know, whatever, seven for the incumbents, two for the dissident. And so I think by making that easier, and again, there are internal, I, I haven't worked inside a fund complex, but I've talked to a lot of people, some mutual funds, et cetera, have you know, this big process internally. If you want to go on to a dissident proxy card and not vote the company card. Does that process become easier? Maybe, perhaps if there's just 
universal, or maybe they still have to go through, jump through the hoops if they're going to support dissident nominees. All I know is just an easier process. And I think some people just throw their hands up and say, well, I want one dissident on, but it's not enough to go through all that. So I'm just going to vote on the company card. And you'll hear a lot of that from the proxy solicitors themselves. And I used to hear it sitting at ISS. I'd hear uh, heads of proxy solicitors that they'll, you know, hey, Chris, if you put your clients on the company card, the way this thing shakes out, there's an unintended consequence where your rec is sort of followed, but the outcome is much more than you wanted. And I'd hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. And that this takes that away. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was writing about a situation recently where ISS recommended a withhold on the company card. And I was told that they really wanted to recommend for one of the dissidents on the dissidents card, but they didn't want to give the, the recommendation that investors vote on the dissident card because then it'd be more likely that more dissidents would be elected, yeah. which is not yeah. what ISS wanted. So a withhold really doesn't accomplish a lot in terms of you know, yeah. a majority of, I was just writing about a situation at a, at a pharmaceutical company where the three directors got majority withholds in an uncontested election and, you know, the companies, those directors are still there. So anyways, yeah, I mean, is this, is that kind of the thing that you think this ISS is trying to resolve? Yes. ISS would like to be able to put out a recommendation that its clients can follow to the letter if they so choose, right? So the withhold example, I've seen that many times, right? It's unsatisfying for the clients. It's unsatisfying to ISS to issue that. It also can have unintended consequences. So they want to be able to give a direct recommendation that their clients can follow to a T again, if those clients you know, want to do so instead of trying to backdoor it through a withhold on the company card, as your example uh, illustrates. I mean, the problem is, is that if they were to recommend on the, on the distant card, there would be the situation where some of the incumbent directors might not get as many votes as ISS would have liked them to get. Right. Or only some of the ISS clients follow the specific dissident candidates that ISS is supporting. Others just start checking all the boxes on, on that card with, you know, maybe unthinkingly. Some may not agree with the candidates that ISS chose, but they like the other dissident candidates, right? So, so now suddenly, instead of, like I said before, you the two, you have the unintended consequences of four dissidents are elected. Mm-hmm. And in large part, it may have been driven by the technical issues around separate proxy cards. Yeah. All right. Well, anyways, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm wondering if it'll increase the number of proxy fights. Uh, they're out there and it'll definitely make the proxy fights that do take place very interesting. So I'll be carefully looking out for that one that you were talking about, Chris, in, in case that does turn into a proxy fight. So, yeah. all right, this has been great. You've been listening to the Active Investing Today podcast and with Ron Oral, and we've been speaking to Chris Young, Global Head of Contested Situation at Jefferies. Thank you, Chris, for taking the time. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate it.